Now, we've all seen that movie, right? The rom-com, romantic comedy, or just the pure romance movie, the chick flick, whatever it is that, that has that incredibly compelling and moving story that leads and builds up to the climax where that guy or that girl finally says that line, those famous, famous lines that we're still quoting today, those lines that you know even if you haven't seen that movie. We're going to do something a little fun to start off. I've got a list of a few famous movie lines, movie quotes that I'm going to go through and in the chat today, whether you're on Facebook, whether you're on YouTube or on the website watching live today, all of those options have the ability to chat. I'm going to say a, a line from a movie, a famous quote, and let's just test your knowledge, see how many of you know what movie these lines came from. Not only am I going to say them, I'm going to do my best to channel my inner actors or actresses, channel my Julia Roberts, or Tom Cruise, whomever may be. So we'll see. I might make a fool out of myself, which will be fun anyway. So here we go. Number one, these are mostly pretty easy because they're very famous, very popular. We're going to start off with the softball real easy. Here we go. You had me at hello. You had me at hello. You know that one, right? You got to know that one. Surely you know that one. All right, the second one, here we go. I got to see if I can smile big enough for this one. I've actually never seen this movie, but I've seen the scene, okay? I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. I don't know if I can get my smile big enough for Julia Roberts. It's a little hint on that one. All right, all right. Here we go. This next one actually happens to be my favorite moment of my favorite rom-com, romance, comedy movie. I'm not a big, I honestly don't really like chick flicks or romance movies, but this movie I love. It's one of my favorites. Um, So here we go. Here's the the moment from that movie. Here we go. I wanted it to be you. I wanted it to be you so badly. You know what movie that is. You now know my favorite romance movie, No Shame. I love that movie. Okay, let's go on. Here we go. I know some of you are a little more advanced in years than me, so I've got one here for you guys as well. So uh, let's see if you can get this. I've got actually two lines from this movie. If you don't get it from the first, you certainly will get it from the second. It is, kiss me, kiss me as if it were the last time. Now, if that's not enough for you to get that one, here we go. Here's, again, your softball. Here's looking at you, kid. You got to know that one. All right. You got to know that one. This one. (laughs) Okay, here we go. You make me want to be a better man. Yeah, we'll see who knows that one. That one might be a little more difficult. Maybe not, depending on your age. Who knows? This next one, 95% of the ladies are going to know this one. And maybe 2% of guys are going to get this one. Here we go. This one's for the ladies. I must tell you, you have bewitched me, body and soul. And I love, I love, I love you. You know, yeah, I know. All the girls are like, that's the easiest one in the world. Okay, so this next one comes from maybe the 
greatest, most popular, I guess we'd say, romance movie of all time. Maybe not all time, but maybe modern romance movie. Okay, I got to channel, channel my inner, inner southern boy. I grew up in the south, so here we go. <clears throat> so it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And we're going to have to work at it every day. But I want to do that because I want you. I want all of you forever, you and me, every day. Yeah, you know that one. All right, last one. Some of you are like, can we move on? Here's the last one. I saved this one for last on purpose. In fact, this one actually comes from a movie we've already quoted. And this one I saved for last because it really gets to the deep, deep core belief that our society holds and, and our world holds. Here we go. I know you've heard this one. I love you. You complete me. Is that not the core belief that our society, our culture, our world has taught us that if we can just find the right person, they'll complete us, they'll fulfill us. If we can find that right one, they will make us complete. Now, from that, you might have already figured out where this is going. Some of you are thinking, oh, okay, this is the week where the preacher tells us, you know, hey, your spouse can't complete you, only Jesus can complete you. I know that. Okay, honey, put the chicken in the oven, let's get ready for dinner. I've heard this before. And although that, that's true, that is the main thrust, the main point of the message today, it's not uncommon for us to know truth and then not be honest with ourselves about ways we behave contrary to such clear-cut truth. I mean, we all know what kind of foods promote health, right? We know what kind of food keeps us lean and keeps our heart healthy and keeps our metabolism up and all that kind of stuff. We know what foods do that, and we all know what kind of foods um, are not so good for us, the kind of foods that might lead to heart disease or, or diabetes or obesity or many other health conditions. We all know those things, but how many actually use food for the purpose of being healthy and maybe try to convince themselves that they're healthy with the knowledge that they have when their practices, I mean, just to be candid, I had a donut this morning and I might have one more when this is done. We all know that, and that's the danger of preaching about topics like this, is we as humans are fully capable of hearing these truths and then thinking because we've heard them, ah, we've got it, and that's it. I've heard that before. I, I, got, there's, I get that, of course. Especially when you enter into a series about marriage or a sermon titled, You Complete Me, Oh, I Get It, Only Jesus Can Complete Me. But I want to ask you one question. Does he? Does Jesus complete you? See, do you live in a way that attests to your believing that Christ satisfies, completes, and fulfills you? Do you live in a way that shows that and that, that shows that you don't expect anyone or anything else to complete you? 
Those of us who have learned these biblical truths that we can only be fulfilled and satisfied and complete in Christ, we would never really say that we expect our spouse to complete us. Like us, us church people, we, we know this truth. That only Christ can complete us and fulfill us and satisfy us. Our spouse cannot. Pastor Derek taught on it last week that we shouldn't expect our spouse to satisfy us or any relationship really. But often in life, our actions don't mirror the truths we've been taught. Or I guess another way of saying it is our actions really show whether or not we believe something. See, a lot of biblical principles and truth and knowledge we accept and we understand as mental assent, but we don't let it sink into our heart to where we believe it. I know you believe in gravity because you're not going to go jump off of a cliff. Do you believe that only Christ can satisfy you, fulfill you, and complete you? Do you, do you believe that? Does your action, does your marriage confirm that? Does the way you handle your money, your time, your schedule, everything, does, does your life and your actions confirm that you believe only Christ can complete you? So, if marriage is not supposed to make us complete, then why did God create it? Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to look in Scripture this morning. We're going to the very beginning. Maybe not the very beginning because we're not going to go to chapter 1, but Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 15, and we're going to read the account of God creating marriage, creating man and woman for each other. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. A couple things I want to emphasize right there. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So that's why it's that two there tells us why God put the man in the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whether the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a, again, helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man says, this at last is bones of my, or bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Praise God. See, we are designed. 
we can see early in the biblical account, in the biblical narrative, right in the creation account, that we are designed by God to have deep, intimate companionship. We see this ring true all throughout Scripture with all sorts of different types of levels of relationships that are accounted through the biblical narrative. We see, of course, the beginning of marriage with Adam and Eve. And although the word marriage wasn't used there, you can see right away in the next couple of chapters that God calls husband and wife throughout the narrative of the garden and the fall of man and the aftermath as well. We see marriage, that deep, intimate companion relationship. We see as we proceed on throughout the narrative of Scripture that there are many times that individuals develop deep companion relationships, close, strong friendships with other individuals. We see this with David and King Saul's son, Jonathan. They become covenant friends. They basically become family to one another. They are such close best friends. We see this on into the New Testament. We see it in Christ selecting 12 disciples out of thousands and thousands of people that became disciples and that thousands of people that would follow him around Israel as he was conducting his earthly ministry. There were still 12 that he selected to be close to him and follow him and be discipled by him. And then even closer than that, we see that he selects three Peter, James, and John that kind of form his inner circle that get even closer to him than the other nine out of the 12. We are designed for companionship. It's all throughout scripture. We even see in the book of Acts the account of different apostles and different church leaders and ministry persons that were connected to one another more closely than others. These two went on this mission trip together, and these two did this, this mission together, and, and these two were really close, and these ones were close, and they did their own thing. Like, it's not a bad thing. It's a natural, normal thing for us to have different levels and different types of relationship, connection, and companionship with others. It's not a bad thing for you to have people that are your best friends or your close friends. For example, uh, Pastor Derek and Pastor Keith and their wives are closer to each other than I am to them. They have companionship and they have relationship. I'm very, very, very close to all of them, but they're a little closer to each other than I am to them, and I'm okay with that because we're not supposed to have that with everybody. God selects and gives and brings people into our lives for seasons and at different levels of companionship, different levels of connection. Pastor Pete and Pastor Jamie, who moved here a little over a year and a half ago, coming up on two years, when they moved up here, my wife and I, my wife Katie and I hung out with them, started spending time with them, and it took no time at all for us to become deeply connected and intimate with them, sharing in deep relationship, deep friendship, where we can uh, we can confide in each other, pray for one another, and we can do that with the others as well, but there's just a different deepness, and we see that all throughout Scripture. We see that as true in our lives, that we are designed for companionship. But the deepest and most intimate of companionships and relationships is meant to be with our spouse. Why? God made man and woman for one another from the get-go. See, in the count of creation, everything that God had done so far, he steps back and says, it is good, or even sometimes it is very good. But after he makes man, he says, it is not good that man should be alone. Now, why did he say that? Why did he act on that? Was it because Adam was lonely? Well, if he was, 
We don't have a count of that in Scripture. We can only build off of what we see in Scripture. So, was Adam lonely? Maybe, but Scripture doesn't say he was. Was it because we have an account of Adam petitioning God to make him complete? No, we don't see that in Scripture. God looked on his creation with his purposes in mind and said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. God did not say it's, it's not good for man to be alone and then make him a best friend. Now, you could argue, and I would agree, that your spouse should be your best friend, but you get what I'm saying. He didn't, he didn't say it's not good for man to be alone and then give him a sibling. He didn't even say it's not good for man to be alone and then along comes man's best friend, the dog. After all the creatures were paraded in front of Adam, each one was not fit for him at the level of companionship that God would say it is good. See, God foresaw with his infinite wisdom, motivated by his purposes, that what is best for man and for God's purposes is that man would have a lifelong companion, that he would be so mutually, intimately acquainted with and share in life's deepest joys and deepest sorrows and love one another and serve one another and forgive one another. So God made a helper fit for him. Helper, the, the Hebrew word there is ezer, or as us good old Americans would probably say, we'd say ezer, and that's why we have the word Ebenezer. We sing the song, uh, actually my favorite song of all time is the old hymn, uh, Come Thou Fount. There's a line in there that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. That is an account from the Old Testament um, when the nation of Israel had won a battle that it was clear that God was with them and had helped them. They, they raised up a, a stone monument to the accomplishment of God in that day and they named it Ebenezer, which means we got here by your help. And it's funny that that word Ezer or Ezer does not imply some lesser or lower servant. In fact, in the same way, this word was used 13 other times in the Old Testament in reference to the help we receive from God. So it's definitely not a you're below me, help me accomplish my purposes type of helper. Helper, It is much more a coming alongside companionship to accomplish God's purposes. God created companions with a common mission or a commission. Remember that in chapter 1 when the creation account of mankind was briefly summarized before the more detailed account is given in chapter 2. In chapter 1 of Genesis, both male and female are equally noted as image bearers before God. And both are commanded to rule and exercise dominion and practice stewardship over God's creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, it's a quick summary of the creation, uh, a quick summary of mankind's creation. And then in chapter 2, it's a more detailed account but when God gives the summary, the brief summary, he creates man and woman, calls them his image bearers, imago Dei, equally. Not some, not the man is greater, the woman is lesser. No, they, they are both image bearers of God, both equally value, valuable before God, but designed differently than the other. Then the role and relationship of the man and the woman is spelled out in more detail in the garden story. 
See, God created human life to firstly have fellowship with him, but also to be a social entity building relationships with other human beings. Isolation is not the divine norm for human beings. Community is the creation of God, and and we see this and we feel this so obviously right now under the circumstances of the coronavirus with everybody having to stay home and not have play dates or not go out to your favorite places, not go over to your friends' homes and all that stuff that we've been asked to do for the time being. Life feels wrong right now because we were designed for this companionship, this interaction, this relating, this talking, this conversing, this companionship. And again, thankfully, we are allowed to share still in our deepest companionship. And hopefully in this season, this stay-at-home season um, with COVID-19 in our world, hopefully, hopefully you're allowing this to be a season that actually deepens your relationship with your spouse. I understand that it's very easy for this to actually be a season that, that causes frustration, that stirs things up, that, that brings and magnifies challenges or even maybe magnifies things that have been ignored in your marriage. And I just hope and pray that by the grace of God, you would allow him to, to use the difficulty of this season to actually refine and strengthen your marriage. I hope that you would use the extra time that maybe you have. I know some essential workers actually have less time, but, but use this season to, to refine, to strengthen, to build your marriage. God created us for companionship, but companion does not mean completion. Companion is not equal to completion. See, before sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's decision, to disobey God, man and woman were fully complete. They were joined as one flesh in union with God. But we see, once sin enters, this divine companionship is fractured. I mean, we can see it as we read on in chapter 3, the fall of man. Adam and Eve are tempted uh, by the serpent to disobey God, to rebel him, uh, rebel against him, to disobey his command. And when sin enters, they choose to disobey. They choose to partake of the fruit. They were there together. It says that Eve gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. He didn't stop her. Um, They were there. And when that sin happened, God places the curse on the earth. He is walking through the garden. Adam and Eve, their eyes were open. They recognized they were, eat, they were naked because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're, they're in the garden. They hear God walking in the garden and they hide because they're like, we're naked. We can't be naked before God. They jump in the bushes. God's like, Adam, where are you? Which he knew where they were, but I think he was trying to set up the conversation. Adam says, I was hiding because I was naked. And God says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat from? And what do we see right here? We see this companionship fractured immediately in Adam's answer. He said, uh, it was the woman you gave me. That woman, she ate of the fruit and she gave it to me and she ate. Immediately, right away with sin, we see blame shifting happen. 
And, and Eve answers, well, it, it was the serpent. He deceived me. That divine companionship, that unity is now fractured where they're throwing each other under the bus and attacking. Pride, they're trying to defend themselves. That fracture changes. From then on, the picture of that companionship, it's now broken. And the joy, the fun we have is learning how to take this broken person and this broken person and join them as one flesh before God and how to help them grow to not be one broken marriage or one broken flesh. That the Holy Spirit could work in the hearts of the two individuals to love and serve one another and to be a picture of Christ in his church. And we'll get to that later. But Adam and Eve were given a command by God not to eat of that tree. And this implies a few things, like the fact that God is extremely generous. We tend to focus on the fact that God said, don't eat from the tree. Um, we just breeze past the fact that he said, eat of all in the garden. God is so generous. He said, I've given you all of this. Eat and enjoy all of my creation, but the one tree in the middle, the knowledge of, or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat from that tree. Another thing that we see is that he has some rules. God had rules. Adam and Eve would have had no illusion that they were God or that they were ultimate or that they had to determine their own reality and set their own standards. They knew there was a God and they knew they were not that God, but they were, crea- uh, they were stewards of God's creation. They knew they were not God. They, they had been given stewardship over that God's creation. And since they knew there was a God and they knew this God, here's the key. They did not try to make each other God. Since they knew there was a God, they did not expect from each other what they would have expected from God, especially before the fall of man. Adam and Eve would have clearly seen God as the completer, not themselves. I'll say that again. Adam and Eve would have clearly seen God as the author, creator, and completer, not themselves. But what we have done as a creation broken by sin is we have elevated the creation above the creator, which is not actually possible, but in our hearts it's possible. You can't elevate creation above creator. It's not possible. There's nothing higher than God, nothing greater, no authority higher nothing more powerful, and that is he is preeminent, uh, Colossians tells us. But in our hearts and in our minds, we can elevate the creation above the creator. Let's go to Romans chapter 1, a very confronting passage from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, what we just read about. Excuse me. In the things that have been made, sorry, ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse, verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. 
Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their own thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is, this is the account of what happened in Genesis 3, the fall of man, and what has trickled into all of us after Adam and Eve as their descendants. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling the mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We see right there in Romans, the Apostle Paul is telling us that this is our propensity as fallen humans that we look at all of God's good, beautiful, wonderful creation, all the wonderful things he has given us and made available to us in common grace, the good things he has made for us and given to all of mankind. We look at those things and in our hearts, we elevate those things above the creator. The hard truth is that our expectations and hopes to find completion in a spouse are actually idolatry in our hearts. Oh boy, this is fun. See, this is what we do with everything, not just spouses. John Calvin famously said that the, the human heart is an idol factory. And I can, I can attest and confirm in my own self, that is true. It's true for all of us. The human heart is so capable of taking good things, God things, and, to, and then distorting and perverting and creating them, turning them into idols by elevating them in priority and focus in our hearts and minds above God. We take good gifts of grace from God and we make them God's. Spouses are an incredible, incredible gift of the grace of God. Spouses are an invaluable gift of the grace of God, but they make terrible gods. Your spouse, if you're single, your future spouse is an incredible gift to you from God. Your spouse ought to make you go, whoa, God, wow, thank you for this incredible gift that you have given me that I don't deserve. I know I don't deserve my wife. That is a gracious gift from God. But our spouses are terrible gods. We cannot expect from our spouse what only God can give, the completion, the fulfillment, the satisfaction that comes from God. And we see this explained as we read in Romans chapter 1 that fallen man has worshipped these created things rather than the creator. This is nothing new. As a creation broken by sin, by sinful nature, we seek over and over to find fulfillment in relationships and possessions and achievements and pleasures. 
This is what we do. This is why no matter what stage of life we're in, no matter what new thing we got that we thought would finally make us happen, no matter what level of achievement we're telling ourselves, if I could just achieve this or accomplish that, or if I could just have this thing, or if I could finally meet that someone. I, I, I can remember ever since I was like 12 years old, I had a, a, a longing to find my wife. I, ever since I was a young guy, I, I wanted to find my, my perfect one. And the truth is, it's because I thought that that was finally what was going to fulfill me and make me happy. I was deceiving myself, trying to convince myself that I was a Christian when I was looking at all of God's creation, trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction. I was trying to especially find that in my hopes. I remember 2005, hanging out with some close friends on a Friday night in South Arkansas. We went to the movie theater because that's all there is to do in rural South Arkansas. In this particular February of 2005, we went to the movie and uh, we watched a good old movie called Hitch. It's a romantic comedy, funny movie, really enjoyable. And I remember at the, at the end of that movie, leaving the theater going, not saying, but in my heart going, I wish I could find that. I wish I knew where she was. I wish I could be complete in, in knowing who that was. And little did I know it would take 15 more years before God would join me in unity with my wife. The ancient preacher Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes declares, it's all vanity, all of these things that we try to find fulfillment in. In fact, King Solomon had it all. He was the richest dude in the world. He had achieved everything, acquired everything, expanded his kingdom. Anything he wanted, he could have. Anything he wanted to do, he could do. In fact, here, this ought to expose the error of expecting a spouse to complete us in the fact that he had 1,000, excuse me, 1,000 spouses, wives, and concubines. 300 wives and 700 concubines. That's not smart. That's dumb. But what does that show you? When he found the one, the first one, can't you imagine him going, ah, I found her and this is the one that's finally going to be, be the one who fulfills me and completes me. And he probably writes the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon about that one because the way he talks about her, it's like he's expecting that fulfillment and satisfaction in that one. And, and then probably gets it for a little while. There's the honeymoon season, right? It's like the birds are chirping. You're together. You're enjoying marital intimacy. You get to wake up next to your best friend, your spouse. You get to do everything together. You're finally satisfied and complete until you're not. Until Monday comes or until the honeymoon wears off and until that you find out that, that they squeeze the toothpaste wrong or that they do the toilet paper backwards or all the little things that make you go, this, this is not do for me what I thought it would do. It does do what it's supposed to do by God's design for marriage. And it is a wonderful gift that ought to, to bring great and deep joy in accomplishing God's purposes together and to knowing each other so intimately and so deeply and glorifying God in that and in your, your joy and in your relationship and in your fellowship and your union together and in glorifying God in your marriage. It ought to do all those things, but it's not meant to complete us. And expecting a spouse to complete us 
we place an unachievable task before them while also robbing God of his glory and his ability to satisfy us. When we expect our spouse to complete us, we place a burden on them that they cannot carry. We set an unachievable task before them. They're not capable of completing us, fulfilling us, satisfying us. And we rob God of the glory he gets in being the one who does that. I love John Piper's mantra, his famous quote is that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. There is nothing we can do that gives more glory to God than living in a way that shows you, God, are what satisfies me. That our money would be handled in a way that shows that he is what I'm expecting to complete me, not money. That our marriages, our spouses, our relationships, if you're not married, these things would be handled in a way that shows we want to do them to honor God and use them for his purposes, but do not expect them to complete us and satisfy us in the way that only God can. God is glorified in being able to fill and satisfy and complete us in a way that no one and no thing else can. Because we were designed for that fellowship with him, that completion in him. The gospel always flips my marital expectations from what are they doing for me to what am I doing for them. See, the heartbeat of the expectation of completion from our spouse, expecting them to complete us, the heartbeat of that is a very dangerous foundation for marriage, and that being, what are you going to do for me? What are you giving to me? What are you bringing the table? I'm going to join in marriage with you because you're purdy, or because we have fun together and we get along, or because um, our socioeconomic statuses will match together well, our life plans will match together well, we want to have the same amount of kids, we both have the same goals, and all those things are good and fine, but they are foundationally selfish. And we can see in Scripture in Ephesians chapter 5 that the root and heartbeat of marriage is not selfish by God's design. Of course, there will be self-interest. In, of course, you've got to, it, it starts with attraction to your spouse. And of course, there are things to be received and gain from marriage. But if those are the heartbeat and the drive of your marriage, uh, man, you're, it's going to be bad. It's going to be, in tr- you're in trouble. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Oh boy, he went there. Hang on, let's keep reading. Wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, here we go, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one 
has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. This sounds familiar, huh? And hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That heartbeat of marriage we see there in Ephesians chapter 2 is not a self-interest heartbeat. Wives are called to honor and submit to their husbands as unto the Lord unless that husband is the broken man who is um, asking you to do things that would be contrary to God's will and God's word and God's way. That we are to submit to that husband and honor that husband as we honor the Lord and Understand that husbands, we're called to die for our spouse, our wife. That we are to love our spouse, our wife, as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. See, the gospel comes into our broken situation, our idle factory heart that is looking for completion in everything else. The gospel exposes us and shows us and teaches and reveals to us that all these temporal things and all these relationships that we hope will fix our broken heart are inadequate to do so. Even our spouse, which is probably the one thing that could come the closest because of the, the design of God for that deep and intimate companionship, it still cannot achieve what only Christ can do in your heart. If you're single today, you've got that lost not fulfilled. There's got to be more. Please don't deceive yourself into thinking that that spouse is going to do you do that for you. What that's going to do is going to push you into relationships you shouldn't get into. That was my mistake growing up. I wanted it so bad. I wanted to find it so bad that I was always looking. Could it be her? Uh, man, when you're at Bible school, it's like, oh, all these girls love Jesus. It could be her. It could be her. It could be her. That's dangerous. You will get into relationships. You will hurt and be hurt unnecessarily. Don't let yourself think that that fulfillment that comes in Christ is in someone. If you are married in a relationship and you are feeling that same void, are you looking to be satisfied in Christ? The gospel looks at the broken heart and says you're broken because you are not in union and fulfilled and satisfied in the fulfiller, satisfier, eternal Christ. I hope and I pray that today the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes to the truth that everything you've been looking for, all these things that you've been hoping would fulfill and satisfy you, the pursuit that you've been keeping your eyes out for that guy, for that girl, hoping could it be, hey, it might be, they have qualities, they have potential, that you would just stop. And recognize those are just pacifiers. They're nooks that we could just go until you realize, like that baby, there's no substance, there's no milk in this pacifier. I need the milk. I need Christ to fulfill me. And when we have that fulfillment in Christ, you're going to become the best husband, the best wife you could be because you're not expecting from them what only God can give. And in fact, God transforms your heart to bring to the marriage table 
what you should be contributing of selfless service rather than you're not meeting my expectations. God, I pray today for every person watching and listening. I ask that for each of us who are trying to find our fulfillment and satisfaction in a spouse or in someone else or whatever, God, that you would show us the truth, that you would change our hearts, that you would reveal to us that we cannot be or do what you are and what you do in our lives. Help us see that you are the treasure in the field, that you are worth more than anything and everything else, that you are the answer, you are the satisfier and completer of our soul, that only you can answer the deepest longing of our hearts and that we could properly contextualize and properly place everything else, especially our spouse, especially our marriage or hopes and ambitions for a marriage. That it would be a God-honoring union to bring glory to you to accomplish your purposes in this world, not our own. God, I ask you to bring healing, grace, mercy, reconciliation, and forgiveness to every stressed and frustrated and estranged marriage that is represented today. I ask you to give wisdom, guidance, and patience to those who have not yet found their spouse. Let them not be led astray by idolatrous temptations that would arise letting them think that they've got to find that someone. Yeah, right time, your place, your time, the right person, God. Lead them, guide them. All, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.